0: Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading A Journey to the Centre of the Earth. Chapters 28 and 29 by Jules Verne In the last chapter, the crew reached the large open ocean at the Earth's center and explored the bewildering forest nearby, discovering clues of long-lost animals. In tonight's story, the crew will finally embark on their journey across the Central Sea. First. Let's make sure we're ready to fall asleep. If you haven't already, find a nice place to be cozy, be it in a chair, in your bed, or elsewhere, and rest your body in whatever way feels most relaxed sitting up, laying down, eyes open, or eyes closed. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So whilst you're on your path to sleep, all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. And now, let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 28 Launching the Raft On the morning of the next day, to my great surprise, I awoke completely restored. I thought a bath would be delightful after my long illness and sufferings. So, soon after rising, I went and plunged into the waters of this new Mediterranean. The bath was cool, fresh, and invigorating. I came back to breakfast with an excellent appetite. Hans, our worthy guide, thoroughly understood how to cook such edibles as we were able to provide. He had both fire and water at his discretion, so that he was enabled to slightly vary the weary monotony of our ordinary repast. Our morning meal was like a capital english breakfast with coffee by way of wind-up and never had this delicious beverage been so welcome and refreshing my uncle had sufficient regard for my state of health not to interrupt me in the enjoyment of the meal but he was evidently delighted when i had finished now then said he Come with me. It is the height of the tide, and I am anxious to study its curious phenomena. What? I cried, rising to astonishment. Did you say the tide, uncle? Certainly I did. You do not mean to say, I replied, in a tone of respectful doubt that the influence of the sun and moon is felt here below. And pray why not? Are not all bodies influenced by the law of universal attraction? Why should this vast underground sea be exempt from the general law, the rule of the universe? Besides, there is nothing like that which is proved and demonstrated. Despite the great atmospheric pressure down here, you will notice that the inland sea rises and falls with as much regularity as the Atlantic itself. As my uncle spoke, we reached the sandy shore and saw and heard the waves breaking monotonously on the beach. They were evidently rising. This is truly the flood, I cried looking at the water at my feet. Yes, my excellent nephew, replied my uncle, rubbing his hands with the gusto of a philosopher, and you see by these several streaks of foam that the tide rises at least ten or twelve feet. It is indeed marvellous. By no means, he responded, on the contrary. It is quite natural. It may appear so in your eyes, my dear uncle, was my reply, but all the phenomena of this place appear to me to partake of the marvellous. It is almost impossible to believe that which I see. Who in his wildest dreams could have imagined that beneath the crust of our earth there could exist a real ocean? With ebbing and flowing tides, with its changes of winds, and even its storms. I, for one, should have laughed at the suggestion. But, Harry, my boy, why not? inquired my uncle, with a pitying smile. Is there any physical reason in opposition to it? Well, If we give up the great theory of the central heat of the earth, I certainly can offer no reason why anything should be looked upon as impossible. Then you will own, he added, that the system of Sir Humphrey Davy is wholly justified by what we have seen. I allow that it is, and that point once granted. I certainly can see no reason for doubting the existence of seas and other wonders, even countries, in the interior of the globe. That is so, but of course these varied countries are uninhabited. Well, I grant that it is more likely than not. Still, I do not see why this sea should not have given shelter. some species of unknown fish. Hitherto we have not discovered any, and the probabilities are rather against our ever doing so," observed the professor. I was losing my scepticism in the presence of these wonders. Well, I am determined to solve the question. It is my intention to try my luck with my fishing line and hook. Certainly, make the experiment, said my uncle, pleased with my enthusiasm. While we are about it, it will certainly be only proper to discover all the secrets of this extraordinary region. But, after all, where are we now? I asked. All this time, I have quite forgotten to ask you a question, which, doubtless, your philosophical instruments have long since answered. Well, replied the professor, examining the situation from only one point of view, we are now distant 350 leagues from Iceland. So much, was my exclamation. I have gone over the matter several times, and am sure not to have made a mistake of five hundred yards, replied my uncle positively. And as to the direction, are we still going to the southeast? Yes, with a western declination of nineteen degrees, forty two minutes, just as it is above. As for the inclination, I have discovered a very curious fact. What may that be, Uncle? Your information interests me. Why, that the needle instead of dipping towards the pole as it does on Earth, in the Northern Hemisphere, has an upwards tendency. This proves, I cried, that the great point of magnetic attraction lies somewhere between the surface of the earth and the spot we have succeeded in reaching. Exactly, my observant nephew, exclaimed my uncle, elated and delighted, and it is quite probable that if we succeed in getting towards the polar regions, somewhere near the 73rd degree of latitude, where Sir James Ross discovered the magnetic pole, we shall behold the needle point directly upwards. We have therefore discovered, by analogy, that this great centre of attraction is not situated at the very great depth. Well, said I, rather surprised, this discovery will astonish experimental philosophers. It was never suspected. "'Science, great, mighty, and in the end, unerring,' replied my uncle dogmatically. "'Science has fallen into my errors, errors which have been fortunate and useful rather than otherwise, for they have been the stepping stones to truth. "'After some further discussion, I turned to another matter. Have you any idea of the depth we have reached? We are now, continued the Professor, exactly thirty five leagues, above a hundred miles, down into the interior of the Earth. So, said I, after measuring the distance on the map, and have over our heads the lofty Grampian Hills. You are quite right, said the Professor, laughing. It sounds very alarming, the weight being heavy, but the vault which supports this vast mass of earth and rock is solid and safe. The mighty architect of the universe has constructed it of solid materials. Man, even in his highest flights of vivid and poetic imagination, never thought of such things. What are the finest arches of our bridges, what the vaulted roofs of our cathedrals, to that mighty dome above us, and beneath which floats an ocean with its storms and calms and tides? I admire it all as much as you can, uncle, and have no fear that our granite sky will fall upon our heads. But now that we have discovered matters of science and discovery, what are your future intentions? Are you not thinking of getting back to the surface of our beautiful earth? This was said more as a feeler than with any hope of success. Go back, nephew, cried my uncle in a tone of alarm. You are not surely thinking of anything so absurd or cowardly. No, my intention is to advance and continue our journey. We have as yet been singularly fortunate, and henceforth I hope we shall be more so. But, said I, how are we to cross yonder liquid plain? It is not my intention to leap into it head-foremost, or even to swim across it, like Leander over the Helenspont. But as oceans are, after all, only great lakes, inasmuch as they are surrounded by land, so does it stand to reason that this central sea is circumscribed by granite surroundings. Doubtless was my natural reply. Well then, do you not think that when once we reach the other end, we shall find some means of continuing our journey? Probably, but what extent do you allow to this internal ocean? Well, I should fancy it to extend about forty or fifty leagues, more or less. But even supposing this approximation to be a correct one, what then? I asked. My dear boy, we have no time for further discussion. We shall embark tomorrow. I looked around with surprise and incredulity. I could see nothing in the shape of a boat or vessel. What? I cried. We are about to launch out upon an unknown sea, and where, if I may ask, is the vessel to carry us? Well, my dear boy, it will not be exactly what you would call a vessel, for the present we must be content with a good and solid raft. A raft? I cried incredulously, but down here... A raft is as impossible of construction as a vessel, and I am at a loss to imagine. My good Harry, if you were to listen instead of talking so much, you would hear, said my uncle, waxing a little impatient. I should hear. Yes, certain knocks with the hammer, which Hans is now employing to make the raft. He has been at work for many hours. Making a raft? Yes. But where has he found the trees suitable for such a construction? He found the trees already to his hand. Come and you shall see our excellent guide at work. More and more amazed at what I heard and saw, I followed my uncle like one in a dream. After a walk of about a quarter of an hour, I saw hands at work on the other side of the promontory which formed our natural port. A few minutes more and I was beside him. To my great surprise, on the sandy shore lay a half-finished raft. It was made from beams of a very peculiar wood and a great number of limbs, joints, boughs, and pieces lay about, sufficient to have constructed a fleet of ships and boats. I turned to my uncle, silent with astonishment and awe. Where did all this wood come from? I cried. What wood is it? Well, there is pinewood, fir, and the palms of the northern regions, mineralized by the action of the sea, he replied sententiously. Can it be possible? Yes, said the learned professor. What you see is called fossil wood. But then, cried I, after reflecting for a moment, like the lignites, it must be as hard and as heavy as iron and therefore will certainly not float. Sometimes that is the case. Many of these woods have become true anthracites, but others again, like those you see before you, have only undergone one phase of fossil transformation. But there is no proof like demonstration, added my uncle, picking one or two of these precious waifs and casting them into the sea. The piece of wood, after having disappeared for a moment, came to the surface and floated about with oscillation produced by wind and tide. Are you convinced? said my uncle, with a self satisfied smile. I am convinced, I cried, that what I see is incredible. The fact was that my journey into the interior of the earth. Was rapidly changing all preconceived notions, and day by day preparing me for the marvellous. I should not have been surprised to have seen a fleet of native canoes afloat upon that silent sea. The very next evening, thanks to the industry and ability of Hans, the raft was finished. It was about ten feet long. And five feet wide. The beams, bound together with stout rope, were solid and firm, and once launched by our united efforts, the improvised vessel floated tranquilly upon the waters of what the Professor had well named the Central Sea. Chapter 29 On the Waters A Raft Voyage On the thirteenth of August we were up betimes, there was no time to be lost. We now had to inaugurate a new kind of locomotion which would have the advantage of being rapid and not fatiguing. A mast made of two pieces of wood fastened together to give additional strength, a yard made from another one, the sail a linen sheet from our bed. We were fortunately in no want of cordage, and the hole on the trail appeared solid and seaworthy. At six o'clock in the morning, when the eager and enthusiastic professor gave the signal to embark, the victuals, the luggage, all our instruments, our weapons, and a goodly supply of sweet water, which we had collected from springs in the rocks, were placed on the raft. Hans had, with considerable ingenuity, contrived a rudder which enabled him to guide the floating apparatus with ease. He took the tiller as a matter of course. The worthy man was as good a sailor as he was a guide and duck hunter. I let go the painter which held us to the shore. The sail was brought to the wind, and we made a rapid offing. Our sea voyage had at length commenced, and once more we were making for distant and unknown regions. Just as we were about to leave the little port where the raft had been constructed, my uncle, who was very strong as to geographic nomenclature, wanted to give it a name, and among others, suggested mine. Well, said I, before you decide, I have another to propose. Well, out with it. I should like to call it Gretchen. Port Gretchen will sound very well on our future map. Well, then, Port Gretchen let it be, said the Professor. And thus it was that the memory of my dear girl was attached to our adventurous and memorable expedition. When we left the shore, The wind was blowing from the northward and eastward. We went directly before the wind at a much greater speed than might have been expected from a raft. The dense layers of atmosphere at that depth had great propelling power and acted upon the sail with considerable force. At the end of an hour, my uncle, who had been taking careful observations, was enabled to judge of the rapidity with which we moved. It was far beyond anything seen in the upper world. If, he said, we continue to advance at our present rate, we shall have travelled at least thirty leagues in twenty-four hours, with a mere raft that is an almost incredible velocity. I certainly was surprised and without making any reply, went forward upon the raft. Already the northern shore was fading away on the edge of the horizon. The two shores appeared to separate more and more, leaving a wide and open space for our departure. Before me I could see nothing but the vast and apparently limitless sea, upon which we floated the only living objects in sight. Huge and dark clouds cast their grey shadows below, shadows which seemed to crush that colourless and sullen water by their weight. Anything more suggestive of gloom and of regions of nether darkness I never beheld. Silvery rays of electric light, reflected here and there upon some small spots of water, brought up luminous sparkles in the long wake of our cumbrous bark. Presently we were wholly out of sight of land. Not a vestige could be seen, nor any indication of where we were going. So still and motionless did we seem, without any distant point to fix our eyes on that but for the phosphoric light at the wake of the raft I should have fancied that we were still and motionless. But I knew that we were advancing at a rapid rate. About twelve o'clock in the day, vast collections of seaweed were discovered surrounding us on all sides. I was aware of the extraordinary vegetative power of these plants, which have been known to creep along the bottom of the great ocean and stop the advance of large ships. But never were seaweeds ever seen, so gigantic and wonderful as those of the central sea. I could well imagine how, seen at a distance, tossing and heaving on the summit of the billows, the long lines of algae have been taken for living things, and thus have been fertile sources of the belief in sea serpents. Our raft swept past great specimens of fucus and sea-wrack from three to four thousand feet in length, immense, incredibly long, looking like snakes that stretched out far beyond our horizon. It afforded me great amusement to gaze on their variegated ribbon like endless lengths. Hour after hour passed without our coming to the termination of these floating weeds. If my astonishment increased, my patience was well-nigh exhausted. What natural force could possibly have produced such abnormal and extraordinary plants? What must have been the aspect of the globe? during the first centuries of its formation, when under the combined action of heat and humidity, the vegetable kingdom occupied its vast surface to the exclusion of everything else. These were considered of never-ending interest for the geologist and the philosopher. All this while we were advancing on our journey, and at length night came but as I had remarked the evening before, the luminous state of the atmosphere was in nothing diminished. Whatever was the cause, it was a phenomenon upon the duration of which we could calculate with certainty. As soon as our supper had been disposed of, and some little speculative conversation indulged in, I stretched myself at the foot of the mast, and presently, went to sleep. Hans remained motionless at the tiller, allowing the raft to rise and fall on the waves. The wind being aft and the sail square, all he had to do was to keep his oar in the centre. Ever since we had taken our departure from the newly named Port Gretchen, My worthy uncle had directed me to keep a regular log of our day's navigation, with instructions to put down even the most minute particulars. Every interesting and curious phenomenon, the direction of the wind, our rate of sailing, the distance we went, in a word, every incident of our extraordinary voyage. From our log, therefore, I tell the story of our voyage on the Central Sea. Friday, August 14th. A steady breeze from the northwest. Raft progressing with extreme rapidity and going perfectly straight. Coast still dimly visible about thirty leagues to Leeward. Nothing to be seen beyond the horizon in front. The extraordinary intensity of the light Neither increases nor diminishes. It is singularly stationary. The weather remarkably fine. That is to say, the clouds have ascended very high, and are light and fleecy, and surrounded by an atmosphere resembling silver in fusion. Thermometer, 32 degrees centigrade. About 12 o'clock in the day, our guide Hans, having prepared and baited a hook, cast his line into the subterranean waters. The bait he used was a small piece of meat, by means of which he concealed his hook. Anxious as I was, I was for a long time doomed to disappointment. Were these waters supplied with fish or not? That was the important question. No, was my decided answer. Then there came a sudden and rather hard tug. Hands coolly drew it in, and with it, a fish, which struggled violently to escape. A fish, cried my uncle. It is a sturgeon, I cried, certainly a small sturgeon. The professor examined the fish carefully noting every characteristic, and he did not coincide in my opinion. The fish had a flat head, round body, and the lower extremities covered with bony scales. Its mouth was wholly without teeth. The pectoral fins, which were highly developed, sprouted direct from the body, which, properly speaking, had no tail. The animal certainly belonged to the order in which naturalists class the sturgeon, but it differed from that fish in many essential particulars. My uncle, after all, was not mistaken. After a long and patient examination, he said, This fish, my dear boy, belongs to a family which has been extinct for ages and of which no trace has ever been found on Earth, except fossil remains in the Devonian strata. You do not mean to say, I cried, that we have captured a live specimen of a fish belonging to the primitive stock that existed before the deluge? We have, said the professor, who all this time was continuing his observations and you may see by careful examination that these fossil fish have no identity with existing species. To hold it in one's hand, therefore, a living specimen of the order, is enough to make a naturalist happy for life. But, cried I, to what family does it belong? To the order of Ganoides an order of fish having angular scales, covered with bright enamel, forming one of the family of cephalopides of the genus. Well, sir, I remarked, as I noticed my uncle hesitated to conclude, to the genus Teractus. yes, I am certain of it. Still, though I am confident of the correctness of my surmise, this fish offers to our notice a remarkable peculiarity, never known to exist in any other fish but those which are natives of subterranean waters, wells, lakes in caverns and such-like hidden pools. And what may that be? It is blind. Blind, I cried with much surprise. Not only blind, continued the professor but also absolutely without organs of sight. I now examined our discovery for myself. It was singular, to be sure, but it was really a fact. This, however, might be a solitary instance, I suggested. The hook was baited again, and once more thrown into the water. This subterranean ocean must have been tolerably well supplied with fish, for in two hours we took a large number of pteryctis, as well as other fish belonging to another supposed extinct family, the dipterides, a genus of fish furnished with two fins only, whence the name, though my uncle could not class it exactly. All, without exception, however, were blind, This unexpected capture enabled us to renew our stock of provisions in a very satisfactory way. We were now convinced that this subterranean sea contained only fish known to us as fossil specimens, and fish and reptiles alike were all the more perfect the farther back they dated their origin. We began to hope that we should find some of those saurians which science had succeeded in reconstructing from bits of bone and cartilage. I took up the telescope and carefully examined the horizon, looked over the whole sea. It was utterly and entirely deserted. Doubtless were we still too near the coast. After an examination of the ocean, I looked upwards towards the strange and mysterious sky. Why should not one of the birds reconstructed by the immortal Cuvier flap his stupendous wings aloft in the dull strata of the subterranean air? It would, of course, find quite sufficient food from the fish in the sea. I gazed for some time upon the void above. It was as silent and deserted as the shores we had but lately left. Nevertheless, though I could neither see nor discover anything, my imagination carried me away into wild hypotheses. I was in a kind of waking dream. I thought I saw on the surface of the water those enormous antediluvian turtles as big as floating islands. Upon those dull and sombre shores passed a spectral row of the mammifers of early days, the great Lipotherium found in the cavernous hollow of the Brazilian hills, the Mesocotherium, a native of the glacial regions of Siberia. Farther on, the Pachydermatous Laphrodon, the gigantic tapir, which concealed itself behind rocks, ready to do battle for its prey with the Anteplotherium, a singular animal partaking of the nature of the rhinoceros, the horse, the hippopotamus, and the camel. There was the giant Mastodon, twisting and turning his horrid trunk, with which he crushed the rocks of the shore to powder, while the Megatherium, his back raised like a cat in passion, His enormous claws stretched out, dug into the earth for food, at the same time that he awoke the sonorous echoes of the whole place with his terrible roar. Higher up still, the first monkey ever seen on the face of the globe clambered, gambling and playing up the granite hills. Still farther away, the pterodactyl, with the winged hands, gliding, or rather sailing, through the dense and compressed air like a huge bat. Above all, near the leaden granatic sky, were immense birds, more powerful than the cassowary and the ostrich, which spread their mighty wings and fluttered against the huge stone vault of the inland sea. I thought such was the effect of my imagination, That I saw this whole tribe of Andaluvian creatures. I carried myself back to far ages, long before man existed, when, in fact, the earth was in too imperfect a state for him to live upon it. My dream was of countless ages before the existence of man. The mammoths first disappeared, then the mighty birds then the reptiles of the secondary period, presently the fish, the crustacea, the mollusks, and finally the vertebrata. The zoophrites of the period of transition in their turn sank into annihilation. The whole panorama of the world's life before the historic period seemed to be born over again and mine was the only human heart that beat in this unpeopled world. There were no more seasons, there were no more climates. The natural heat of the world increased unceasingly and neutralized that of the great radiant sun. Vegetation was exaggerated in an extraordinary manner. I passed like a shadow in the midst of a brushwood, as lofty as the giant trees of California, and trod underfoot the moist and humid soil, reeking with a rank and varied vegetation. I leaned against the huge column-like trunks of giant trees, to which those of Canada were as ferns. Whole ages passed, Hundreds upon hundreds of years were concentrated into a single day. Next, unrolled before me like a panorama, came the great and wondrous series of terrestrial transformations. Plants disappeared. The granitic rocks lost all trace of solidity. The liquid state was suddenly substituted for that which had before existed. This was caused by intense heat acting on the organic matter of the Earth. The waters flowed over the whole surface of the globe. They boiled. They were volatilized or turned into vapor, a kind of steam cloud that wrapped the whole Earth. The globe itself becoming at last nothing but one huge sphere of gas, indescribable in color between white heat and red, as big and as brilliant as the Sun. In the very centre of this prodigious mass, fourteen hundred thousand times as large as our globe, I was whirled round in space and brought into close conjunction with the planets. My body was subtilised, or rather became volatile. And commingled in a state of atomic vapor with prodigious clouds, which rushed forward like a mighty comet into infinite space. What an extraordinary dream! Where would it finally take me? My feverish hand began to write down the marvelous details, details more like the imaginings of a lunatic than anything sober and real. I had, during this period of hallucination, forgotten everything, the professor, the guide, and the raft on which we were floating. My mind was in a state of semi-oblivion. What is the matter, Harry? said my uncle suddenly. My eyes, which were wide open like those of a somnambulist, were fixed upon him, but I did not see him nor could I clearly make out anything around me. Take care, my boy, again cried my uncle. You will fall into the sea. As he uttered these words, I felt myself seized on the other side by the firm hand of our devoted guide. Had it not been for the presence of mind of Hans, I must infallibly have fallen into the waves and been drowned. Have you gone mad? cried my uncle, shaking me on the other side. What? What is the matter? I said at last, coming to myself. Are you ill, Henry? continued the professor, in an anxious tone. No, no, but I have had an extraordinary dream. It, however, has passed away. All now seems well, I added looking around me with strangely puzzled eyes. All right, said my uncle, a beautiful breeze, a splendid sea. We are going along at a rapid rate, and if I am not out in my calculations, we shall soon see land. I shall not be sorry to exchange the narrow limits of our raft for the mysterious strand of the subterranean ocean. As my uncle uttered these words, I rose and carefully scanned the horizon, but the line of water was still confounded with the lowering clouds that hung aloft, and in the distance appeared to touch the edge of the water.